1: Freeway Phantom is available each week on Wednesdays. To hear each episode ad-free and one week early, check out Tenderfoot Plus at tenderfootplus.com.
2: You're listening to Freeway Phantom, a production of iHeartRadio, Tenderfoot TV, and Black Bar Mitzvah. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, Black Bar Mitzvah, or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised.
3: I'm just a guy who grew up in DC, saw a lot of things, I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to do better. I wanted to help families. I knew I know how it feel to be out there, you know, searching for your loved one. It's heartbreaking, especially when the little girls go missing and daddy looking for them and, you know, and mama looking for them and, you know, they feel like the police ain't doing nothing. You know, what are y'all doing? Because they don't see anything. It's heartbreaking. Homicide detectives termed the cases the little girl
4: cases. This child was uh, laying on the side of the road. I wouldn't go nowhere. I wouldn't come out my house. Those first five murders should have been a huge warning bell for the police. We just
3: want to know what happened. This person must have saw that they were thinking that maybe it's just one person. And he says, uh-uh, they need to know. This is me. I thought that they would catch him. I thought it was just a matter of time.
1: I'm Celeste Headley, and this is Freeway Phantom. In the early stages of our Freeway Phantom investigation, we consulted Henderson Long of DC's Missing Voice. Henderson helped us understand the systemic and regional issues that affected the Freeway Phantom investigations in the 1970s and current cases of missing and murdered children.
3: The foundation never changes with any kind of investigative work. The roots of it and what it's about, the core stuff, never, it'll never change.
1: As a D.C. native with deep roots in the community and years spent building relationships, Henderson is an invaluable source of support and expertise for the families who are searching for answers or coping with loss. For this bonus episode, we dig into his story, to learn more about what led him to the work he does today and the hard-fought battle for change in D.C.'s justice system.
3: Basically, what I do is I work right alongside with the lead detective that's working to find a missing person here in D.C. I'm actually going behind him or sometimes ahead of him to interview witnesses, to do cell phone traces, to do surveillance, to take fingerprints and dna and all this kind of stuff to make sure it's submitted it's very rewarding whatever the case may be whatever we're looking that's our number one objective is to stay on that track to look for missing people so what i'm learning about investigating cases you have to have a certain character to do this work because it can be very frustrating you got to kiss a little bit of behind sometime to get the information you want
1: Henderson's nonprofit works on missing persons cases in Washington, D.C., and he often acts as a liaison between the Metropolitan Police and Black communities. The work is hard. It's taken years of emotional and physical labor to establish the trust Henderson now enjoys. But this work is personal. It's directly connected to his upbringing in D.C. and tragedies within his family. I was born in
3: 1968. Uh, over in Southeast Washington, D.C., the Ward 8 sector of Washington, D.C. We all lived in a like a little one-bedroom apartment with my grandmother, my mother's mother. And my father got a good job and we moved over to Ward 5, which is another Northeast sector of D.C. and that's where I grew up. My father still lives in the same house. As a kid, I grew up in the crack era of D.C. I grew up here where crackhead came into our communities in the 80s, and the late 70s is when it was starting. So as a kid, I I got a chance to kind of see all that at a low level, you know, just from my eyes, seeing it. I never was involved in it, never got involved with nothing like that as far as no homicides or nothing, but I saw it. I saw my friends get involved. uh, Growing up, I saw a lot of my friends who are dead now, or most of them are incarcerated i just saw a lot of death here in dc i'm gonna be quite frank and quite honest with you it was a lot of violence here in dc trying to control the drug trade everybody wanted to get a piece of it and as a result we saw a rise in homicides as a kid growing up i got a chance to, to lose loved ones i'm probably a seven time loser i've lost seven or eight people to homicide and when i tell you i seen violence i saw it with my own eyes i lost My kid, my oldest son, his mother was murdered by a 15-year-old back in 1992, 93. I know about death firsthand and violent crimes. I know how I feel for the community to have information on your homicide, but won't nobody come forward. So as a person, this kind of motivated me to do the work I'm doing and also being in the military.
1: Growing up surrounded by violence, Henderson wasn't always sure he would make it out. He thanks his father for emphasizing the importance of structure and discipline.
3: He was tough. My father was really tough. And he laid the law down in the house immediately after high school, after graduating. You know, my father told me I had to get out. I had to either go to work or I had to go to school. And I didn't really want to go to college, so I went in the military. And I did about seven years, and I came back home. I got a chance to work with different people and meet different people and see the goodness in people. Because most people are good people, you know, for the most part. My main aspect of my story was the core was my father and my grandmother. They were at the core of me growing up. Because, you know, sometimes you need a man to tell a man how to be a man. And so my father was probably the biggest example that I had growing up and the reason why I was able to make the decisions that I made.
1: Henderson decided he wanted to be that kind of example for his community too. He eventually established DC's Missing Voice with a focus on finding missing and exploited persons, another issue that hits painfully close to home. In 1999, his aunt Aileen went missing.
3: My aunt was last seen September 15, 1999 family couldn't reach her you know they kept calling her and calling her and calling her with no answer so we called we got the rental office to do a wellness check and when we got to the apartment my little cousin was there in the apartment alone drone in his baby seat because he was a baby at the time and he was strapped in he had been there for a couple of hours and you know my family knew something was wrong we called the police and the police got involved to no avail. We searched, 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 and searched. And at the time, we weren't where we are now with missing persons in 1999. We didn't have social media like we have social media now. We didn't have some of the tools we have now. My family was, they just thought that the police was gonna take care of it. The police, you no, know, the police got it, you to rely on the police. Come to find out a lot of things probably could have been done better. By the police department. They never asked him for DNA, never asked all this time. My family told me, look, don't talk about this no more. We're not getting no answers. Just don't talk about it. It was just so painful.
1: When Aileen went missing in the 90s, the federally funded database, National Missing and Unidentified Person System, or NAMIS, had not yet been established. And the Combined DNA Index System, or CODIS, was brand new. Henderson uses both systems in his work today. He says that had they been available earlier on, it could have saved his family years of pain and uncertainty.
3: We had three unidentified remains down here in D.C. and We just knew one of them probably was Aileen because it was in the same street that she would frequent. I told my family, you know, we we gotta get our DNA and if we're gonna ever prove that that's her and get some kind of closure. Well, in the process, when we put our DNA in, we got a hit on a body that was found in 2000. So she had been in the morgue from 2000 to 2019 before she was identified. Now I'm gonna tell you about good detective work. My detective took a shot in the dark. He had some remains up there at the Maryland coroner's office. They kind of fit the same description, height of her. He asked them, test those bones. Went and test the bones, it turned up snake, it was her. So my family went through a lot of heartache because we didn't know about all the different technology that was available and what we should be using to solve her case. And they quite frankly, didn't want to talk about it. They didn't even want, this wound was so deep and so painful, it was still wide open. We just ignored it. We still wanted answers. We still we was the more desperate for the answers, so they had to go ahead and they went on and they put their DNA in. And they got a match, and then we convinced the son, Jerome, to put his in, and that was a real match. And they were positive that it was her, and that's how we got the answers.
1: Even though Henderson found an answer to his aunt's mystery, his personal tragedies didn't end there. His niece went missing around 2012. And at that point, Henderson was fed up with the cycle of searching and waiting for answers. He decided to get involved with the investigation.
3: I had a niece, 12 years old. She kept running away from home. and You know, the police were working on it. And You know, they got 80 million kids that's missing. So I was out there on the ground talking with dope dealers. What was going through my head was, dang, this is what the police go through. It. And they probably go through it worse than what I'm seeing. She was missing uh, off and on, should I say about three or four years. She's 21 now, she's got four kids. But the, the trauma that she went through, the domestic violence, you know, leaving names out, Domestic violence and all that stuff that she went through, you know, they suffer. They suffer. It changed them.
1: After this, his mission was clear.
3: Looking for her is what got me involved in this. I saw how hard it was for investigators to, to acquire and get information, to get information that they need to solve these cases. And it really drove me to do more and to want to do more to assist them. So I realized I had to learn more about the logistics of investigating cases. And I had to know, you gotta know what you're doing. Because Sometimes you really can mess up a case unintentionally. So I had to learn, I had to, I had to ask a lot of questions from sworn law enforcement officers that are investigators and sit down with them, talk with them. I had to do my own studying. I had to go through various courses to learn how to do this in a professional manner and not just as a citizen.
1: Henderson began working part-time as a trace investigator. He now offers his services to families at no cost.
3: You don't want any money. This is all pro bono work I do. And all of the materials and stuff, some of the stuff is from the police department, some of it's from, but this, you do all this out of your own pocket because you know what it's like. I don't really want to work by contract because I don't want to charge no family to look for a missing person unless they're rich they can pay, but nobody is test driving me. I'm doing this without funding.
1: Part of his work includes running platforms to publicize cases in DC.
3: Platforms are important when it comes to missing people. I have DC's missing voice and missing and for the east of the river. Missing and for the east of the river gives focus to east of the river residents where they can just focus on their missing people. Because they hit me up and they told me, look, we're getting tired of hearing about all these missing people that's happened all over here. And we got the highest number of missing people east of the river. So I created that page to get more eyes on the street in that area. The more eyes you have, the more you can get that call in. Now, DC's missing Voices, all of the missing people in DC. When you talk about an investigative tool, We're in the modern world now, and this internet is something. It can be very powerful when you're doing these public inquiries, when you're asking the public. The Metropolitan Police Department is seeking the public's assistance, locating so-and-so, so-and-so. 80 million people may see that. So that's now a public inquiry, and we get a lot of tips. We have a lot of tips that we follow up on That's why we have them for the main reason, that's to promote and to publicize and to give NPD a greater reach in terms of audience to their missing people in Washington, DC.
1: As we've talked about throughout the season, an investigation has many moving parts. It's complicated and constantly moving like a clockwork mechanism. Details can get lost or overlooked. Henderson wanted to get the best training he could to make sure he was on top of his game.
3: A guy named, last um, name is Palmer, When Great Britain, created a professional course for regular people to go through to learn how to operate within the private sector to do trace investigation, all the necessary paperwork that you need to fill out. Like, if you're my client, I need to know what paperwork to fill out because that's what separates the regular citizen from the private professional investigator, He has documentation, meaning he has an intake form. He has a contract. He knows all the legal considerations when he's doing surveillance. So he doesn't violate anybody's constitutional rights. If you're out there investigating the case, and let's just say it's a case that there's criminal malice involved. You know the aspects of, of the law, you can protect that data from being disqualified and thrown out if you know what you're doing you know so certain things you have to know in terms of the legal considerations and these are just uh, some of the things you learn how to properly interview people what questions to ask you know the theory behind an interview for example when you go into before you even go in the door you got to have an objective you got. If you want a confession, if you want to just build some rapport with him and hit him up back up later again, knowing all of this before you go in, it's a part of your preparation to be an investigator. You know, there's certain principles that we operate off of, you know, before we go in. We try to learn all these different things before we go and start formally interviewing people.
1: Much of Henderson's work as a trace investigator involves gathering information And he's had to hone his skills in interviewing and note-taking even organizing data
3: you can't just jump out these are some of the things you learn when you go through this certification how to document your paperwork you know how to make sure it's in order how to write up a a report to submit the law enforcement what's the fabric of it what would that sworn officer need to have what is he looking for you're supposed to know the basic stuff so there's Something useful when it comes in. You learn all this going through this certification, and it's an international certification, meaning all of the trace investigators got together and they started compiling methods and stuff like that for the guy who may not be working in law enforcement, but who may want to go into the private sector. He can understand how to do it, and they came with a manual. You know, you have online tutoring. You can call and you can ask questions. Your goal mind, when you're any investigator, is staying in contact with senior investigators. I've learned that. You want to call them. You want to say, hey, I got this. And they usually not going to give you the answer, but they'll point you in the right direction. They'll help you. They've been there before. They've already done it. Your case ain't the first case under the sun.
1: He got into this work because of his passion for service and its emotional work. But after a decade of experience, there's also a familiar pattern to the job.
3: Well, I might get off from work. I might get a call and I might go and do a general intake with a family. It may be over the Internet. It might be over the phone. They'll throw me some known locations with the person frequent. We'll go there. We'll set up surveillance because we're all creatures of habit and we may head out. I might do some reverse phone checks. They may be getting calls from their loved one from a given number, and they may want me to find out what's the location, where are they at? So we'll go and try to figure out where they are. We'll use social media to look at the background of where they took a picture at, and we'll try to figure out where they are, where they may be hanging out at. A lot of my work involves surveillance because you got the lead detective, the sworn law enforcement officer. He's doing the heavy lifting in the office. I might go out there day to day and I might just be sitting at a location and I positively ID the missing person. They never see me or know anything about I'm there. I call 911, MPD patrol services come, contact the missing person. Either they'll bring them back in if they're under 18, if they're over 18, they'll notify the family the missing person has been located. So a lot of it is surveillance and, and light investigative work.
1: Henderson took us on a ride-along through his patrol routine. My producer Jamie and I sat in his SUV as Henderson drove around the neighborhoods doing standard surveillance.
3: So We're just going to ride there. Um, and, you know, you guys can take a look. This is every day what you're going to see every single day. Sun up to sundown, this is what's going on in the community. And it's perpetuating our most severe cases. So.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry.
1: Henderson-Long says the tasks can become routine, but every case is different. There are abductions, like the case of Relisha Rudd, an 8-year-old girl who went missing in 2014, and runaways, like Henderson's niece. On our ride-along, he talked about other cases he's worked on.
3: Right now, we're at 19th and Bennett Road. Between 19th and Bennett Road and 15th and Bennett Road, it's kind of like an area where we have a lot of missing persons that we find in this area. There's a lot of drugs, a lot of heroin. I don't know whether you guys know about uh, K2 and PCP. K2 is a drug um, that's killing a lot of people. And I know you probably know about PCP, it makes you hallucinate. Yeah. Um, and so it's a lot of the usage of that drug here. and. That's prompting some of the missing persons cases, it's prompting some of the violent assaults, cause sometimes they think things are happening that are not happening cause they're hallucinating. Just the fact that they're out here unsupervised, it's a big can of worms. You never know, snake eyes, it could turn up snake eyes. And we find a young person either in jail or dead. I had another missing persons case, Dominique Franklin, he was murdered. He was missing and he was located. He went before the judge, the judge gave him some orders to do something. He said screw the judge and screw everybody and walked off and a day later he was found dead, shot in the head. He left on his own, nobody targeted him, but at the end he still wound up losing, he was 16. So Dominique Franklin is another case that I kind of worked in the end of it. The last part of it, uh, I kind of got involved with it a little bit, but Missing persons can lead to anything. It it could turn up them getting arrested for something for the rest of their life, or them losing their life, or taking somebody else's life.
1: The discrepancy between the number of cases and the resources available to solve them mean many slip through the cracks. In episode 10, we talked about Relisha Rudd. She was missing for weeks before her case received any media attention, and she has still not been found. Anderson says publicity can bring children home safely.
3: Keeping the cases out there in the public's eye, educating them about it, that's what really sparked and put the pressure on the police to do something. Them families have to pressure the police, you know? They have to continue to press the police and, and anybody who can help publicize their case That's what keeps your case alive. I mean, that's what keeps these cases alive. That's why we're the way we are with Relisha Rudd, because we don't want the, the community to go to sleep on it. People will forget about this stuff. If you don't say nothing, you don't keep making noise about it, they'll forget. They will forget.
1: There's a big question that hangs over Henderson's work. What issues in the community are contributing to the more than 2,000 cases of missing children each year in D.C. Why do so many cases slip through the cracks and how can we begin to solve the socioeconomic issues at play?
3: You do have people who've become victim of their circumstances, whatever's around them. If it's drugs, if it was domestic violence in the home, if it was poverty in general, because poverty is our motivating factor here. When we start talking about these issues the mayor of washington dc formed a task force and we was examining and we started looking at missing persons and we started looking at solutions and we couldn't find a cookie cutter one fits all because we realized man you talking about a great big social issue the family structure is the number one precursor and what drives that generational wealth gaps shoot domestic violence in the home maybe the new boyfriend is touching the daughter or maybe the new boyfriend is hitting the mother or maybe it's lack of affordable housing we got 80 people living in one home somebody going out of them, and uses the kids it's a lot of stress you know we we don't have a lot of hardcore solutions and real outreach in terms of services for mental health you know, so you see crazy cases, you get out here like militura, and you start wondering, how could the mama do this? not when you look at the family.
1: Henderson says sometimes kids run away from home because something drives them away. domestic violence, poverty, drug use. Sometimes they're lured away by predators like the freeway Phantom. But he says, no matter the reason why they left home, all missing persons' cases need to be treated with the same level of seriousness.
3: Sometimes it's a lot of coercion. You know, sometimes it's a lot of dynamics within the, the person walking out the door on their own, just because they left on their own. I got another case for you, Jolie Musa from Virginia, voluntarily walked out of her home to go meet a young man and never return. Now, just because she voluntarily left, we don't need to downplay her case and think that she's a runaway, see? Because at that point, when you do that, a lot of the action that's supposed to be taken isn't taken. Now, had we started looking for her sooner, could we have found her alive and maybe saved her? We will never know.
1: One solution begins at home. It's staying in touch with our communities.
3: When someone goes missing, especially a child, it's chaos. You don't know how to put your left shoe on from the right. You some things you think you will remember you won't remember we should know our patterns our loved ones patterns we should check up on them you know we we shouldn't be so distant and you know the technology now the phones and everybody email and you know you got to give people a call and see you know just how they're doing i got the older sister and you know she called me and let me know she home you know and stuff like that so we, we got to check on each other. We have to take care of each other in the communities and our families. This is important, because um, we have some cases where the missing person wasn't reported missing for all. Oh, they were last seen one year ago by the families being so estranged. Time's of the essence in the missing person's case, getting that report in and getting the investigation going early, the trace going.
1: When we attended one of Henderson's community outreach events in Southeast D.C., he laid out the Metropolitan Police Department's five steps to prepare you in the event your loved one goes missing.
3: The biggest problem we're having in the District of Columbia, they're not being reported in a timely manner. So much time elapsed. The case of Quran Jones, it was two days. The dumpster was gone on to China. So, that, I mean, that's the first step is just reporting them
1: In Episode 9, we mentioned the case of Kion Jones, a two-month-old whose mother confessed that she rolled over on Kion and he stopped breathing. She later placed his body in a dumpster. Kion's remains were sadly never recovered.
3: What we're trying to do is trying to get people to understand. Call for help, call the police. Because, see now after the medical examiner that came out and examined his body and realized there was no trauma to the body, everything up, it would have just been an accident but by him being thrown into a dumpster, they never been able to find him. To do any kind of examination or determine anything with any kind of medical certainty, uh, it just looks suspicious. And then you give us 80, 90 different stories, and we don't know what what to believe. Um, then, you know, you throw a little bit of substance abuse in there and, you know, the social things in there, and you got, uh, man, you got some stuff.
1: As for Henderson's future in this line of work... He told us he's looking to transition into doing it full-time.
3: Well, I always had a vision that, that D.C. would lead the country and, and take the leadership role on missing persons that it should. We're going to continue to work and work and work and never be complacent about missing persons and what, what more we can do to locate missing persons quickly. You know, we can never, we can never rest. You can never rest on this stuff. It's never a situation of complacency. The more you go through it, you learn. Because every case, every single case got a different twist in it, which requires a certain level of readiness. So talking about all these different things and implementing all these different tools that we can use, it's, it's so much work to be done. But I'm hoping that DC will continue on. I'm gonna keep pushing legislators to get legislation, going back to initial investigations, obstruction, lying to investigators. I think that there should be a penalty for that if we find out you're lying or you don't provide correct information. And in Washington, D.C., there's really no penalty for that. Like in Maryland, if your child is missing and they under the age of, of 18 or 13, you better be reporting them within 24 hours. If they investigate and they find out you knew, and as a result of your negligence, the child suffers trauma, count on the felony. And here in DC, they don't have that. So we're hoping DC will step it up legislatively. we hoping they'll step it up from a law enforcement perspective and definitely the community. Community is huge, way bigger than law enforcement. Get the community involved. And 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 active in the use of the technology and the, the tools and stuff. Oh, we cook it with gas then. That's what I'm hoping.
1: We want to give special thanks to Henderson Long for all his work on the Freeway Phantom case and his support of this podcast. He's been instrumental in helping us tell the story of these young girls, both from the 1970s and today. Henderson's work in the community is vital. His organization, D.C.'s Missing Voice, is an official 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to support the work he does, reach out at henderson.long22 at icloud.com. Or you can find the D.C.'s Missing Voice Facebook page and stay up to date on current missing persons
2: cases. Freeway Phantom is a production of iHeartRadio, Tenderfoot TV, and Black Bar Mitzvah. Our host is Celeste Hidley. This episode was written and produced by Noemi Griffin. The show is written by Trevor Young, Jamie Albright, and Celeste Hidley. Executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio include Matt Frederick and Alex Williams with supervising producer Trevor Young. Executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV include Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay with producers Jamie Albright and Tracy Kaplan. Executive producers on behalf of Black Bar Mitzvah include myself, Jay Ellis, and Aaron Bergman with producer Sidney Foos. Lead researcher is Jamie Albright. Artwork by Mr. Soul216. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Special thanks to the team at UTA, Beck Media and Marketing, and The Nord Group. Tenderfoot TV and iHeartMedia, as well as Black Bar Mitzvah, have increased the reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for their freeway phantom murders. The previous reward of up to $150,000 offered by the Metropolitan Police Department has been matched. A new total reward of up to $300,000 is now being offered. If you have any information relating to these unsolved crimes, contact the Metropolitan Police Department at area code 202-727-9099. For more information, please visit freeway-phantom.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks for
0: listening.